before we jump in and talk about what we're going to talk about tonight and really explain what we're going to talk about this semester in RUF, uh, I, I wanted to begin with... Uh, drawing your attention to uh, a particular movie that has been really meaningful to me. This is a movie that is probably one of the most um, thought-provoking, philosophically interesting social commentaries of the last 10 years. And this would be Talladega Nights, the, uh, the ballad of Vicky Bobby. And uh, probably, you know, for as great of a movie as this is, you know the best scene of the movie is the dinner scene, right? So if I can, um, I would love to just read you an excerpt uh, from, the, from the actual script, the actual screenplay. Um, so you have Ricky Bobby, who is you know, Will Ferrell, and he's sitting at the head of the table, and he's about to um, pray for the meal. And here's what he says. <clears throat> he starts praying, and he goes, Dear little baby Jesus... Thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's and KFC and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, handsome, strapping sons, Walker and Texas Rangers. Texas Ranger. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. And then it goes on, and he goes, Dear little baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. It smells terrible and the dogs are always bothering with it. Dear, tiny, infant Jesus. And then his wife interrupts him at this point and she goes, You know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. And then he, cut, and he jumps in and goes, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And then Cal, who is his you know, best friend at the table with them, he joins in and he goes, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. And then one of his sons... Walker jumps in and he says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurais. And then Cal, the friend, he jumps back in and says, well, I like to think of Jesus with like giant eagle wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band behind him. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. (laughs) Then Ricky Bobby continues his prayer and he goes, dear, eight pound, six ounce, newborn, infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. <laughs> and it goes on, and for as ridiculous as that scene is, I do think it's putting, you know, they're putting their finger on something. And what they're critiquing, what they're um, poking fun at, is that this is, you know, we all do this. We all have our conceptions of who we like to think of Jesus as. Everybody in this room has their own personal, manicured, you know, customized version of Jesus. For some of you, you know, Jesus to you is like a comic book figure. He's like mythical legend Jesus that, you know, the early church wrote this weird book, of, you know, hundreds of years ago, and they kind of embellished this crazy comic book person named Jesus, and he does all these crazy magical things, and he's comic book Jesus to you, for, so you don't really have to take him seriously. Some of you like to picture Jesus as like, you know, sweet, gentle, religious, guru Jesus who's like always hanging around sheep and children. It's very weird. 
<laughs> Some of you uh, like to picture Jesus as, you know, his primary thing that he loves doing the most is forgiving sin. And I love committing it. So we've got a lovely working relationship together. But regardless of, you know, where you find yourself, my guess is everybody in this room, myself included, has at some level a misguided understanding of what Jesus is really like. So what we're going to do this semester in RUF is we're just going to ask that question. Who is he? What, what is he? How do we explain him? How do we explain the impact that he's had on the world? And the, and the way that we're going to go about doing that is we're going to look at the earliest written account about him, which is the Gospel of Mark. It's the earliest written account about him. So we're going to go through the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to take a whole semester here in RUF and explore that and ask that question, who is he? Because that is a massive question, as we'll unpack here in a few minutes. So I want to draw your attention, if you have a Bible or if you have the little booklet thing, we're just going to look at the very first verse tonight. That's all we're going to do. We're going to just look at the title verse, chapter 1, verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark. And then next week, we'll get a little bit more into the meat and potatoes of the actual book. So for tonight... We're just going to look at uh, Mark 1.1, and it reads this. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There it is. Right from the beginning, Mark starts his gospel story by making three enormous radical claims, all packed into that one verse. And here are the three claims that he's basically making. Number one, Christianity is different than you may think. Number two, Jesus is way more important than you may think. And three, hope is bigger than you may think. So those are the three things we're going to look at tonight, all packed into that one little verse. Christianity is different than you may think. Jesus is more important than you may think. And hope is bigger than you may think. First, Christianity is different than you may think. And here's why. If you notice, that very first thing that he says right from the beginning, he begins the beginning of the gospel. Now, if you grew up around church or Christian circles at all, that word gospel is so used, it can almost kind of become devoid of meaning for you. So what does the word gospel mean? In in its most basic sense, the word gospel just simply means good news. Good news. Well, let's let's put on our thinking caps class. What is news? News is the announcement of something that's already happened. You know, sort of several of you got the, you know, text alert from the university today announcing the news that the UC had been, you know, robbed at bomb point, I guess, robbed at, with an armed robbery. And so you got that announcement. News. Something had already happened. It's alerting, you, you know, your attention to this. Uh, my wife and I have two... Beautiful, lovely children, and uh, if you hang around and get to know us, we'd love to you know, get, have you get to know them as well, have them get to know you. But I had the privilege of being in the actual delivery room for both of our kids' birth. And I thought going into it I was going to pass out, and I got close, but I didn't. The Lord miraculously preserved me, and I made it through the birth of my children. But it, you know, it wasn't that long ago where the, the husband couldn't go into the delivery room. You know, he had to like be out like the waiting room. So just imagine me and waiting for the birth of one of my children, and I'm in the waiting room. So, you know, we're 1950s in this made-up scenario. 
1950s, I'm in the hospital waiting room, waiting, anxiously pacing back and forth. I'm drinking that you know, like really crappy hospital coffee they always have, trying to stay awake. And all of a sudden, the doctor busts in. He says, Matt, I've got good news for you. And I'm on the edge of my seat. What? What is it? He says, we need to make some changes in your diet. Uh, we need to regulate your sugars and your salts. Uh, you need to exercise a little bit more regularly. You need to uh, hydrate better. We need to regulate your sleeping patterns. If that's what he said to me in that moment, I would have been uh, confused, <laughs> uh, angry, because that's not good news. That's not even news. That's advice. He's just telling me what to do, giving me advice about my life. He's not giving me any sort of news. Now, the reason I bring that up is because my guess is if you're someone here tonight that is not a Christian or maybe don't even think, you know, know what you think about Christianity, my guess is you think that Christianity is first and foremost advice, not news. In other words, Christianity comes to you and says, here's all the stuff you got to do. And my guess is, if you even consider yourself a Christian tonight, you probably think the same thing. That there's not a whole lot of good news in your Christianity. It's just, it's all advice. Here's all the stuff you got to do. Stop doing the bad stuff that you like doing. Start doing this good stuff that you don't like doing. Read the Bible more. Pray more. Go to church more consistently. Be more you know, enthusiastically involved in worship. Share your faith more. Vote this way. Have this particular view about sexuality. Relate this particular way to alcohol. Here's the list of advice. But if you notice, that's not how Mark starts, starts his book. Christianity does not come to you first and foremost as advice, telling you what to do. It comes to you first and foremost as news, announcing that something has already been done for you. If you think about it, this is, why, this is why Christianity is so radically different from every other religion, every other worldview, every other philosophy. Because basically every other worldview, every other religion, every other philosophy comes to you as advice. Do this. Pray this many times. Here are the four steps to spiritual enlightenment. Here are the seven steps to nirvana. Whatever. It's all about what you have to do. But that's not how Christianity starts. And that's not the heart and that's not the essence of Christianity. Christianity is at its basic essence is this. Good news. That something has been done for you. And if you think about it, you know when you start, when you start a semester, especially for you upperclassmen, you come in and you think, okay, this semester is going to be different. You know what I'm talking about? Where you have this mindset of, I'm going to create a schedule. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read. I'm going to exercise. You know, you'll do this in January with your New Year's resolutions that will last four days. And then uh, it'll fade away. But this is what basically happens. is when you start a semester like that, here's all the stuff I'm going to do. Even if you're very inspired initially, after a while, is it not true that it becomes a burden? Where it's like, ugh. I screwed up again, I slept in, I didn't read, I didn't exercise. Because advice, basically, it doesn't lift your burdens. It doesn't liberate you. It crushes you at the end of the day. But good news, when you get good news, it it lifts your burdens off of you. It liberates you. And the good news of Christianity is that Jesus has done for you what you can never do for yourself. He lived in your place, he died in your place, and he's risen in your place. 
And therefore, your response becomes just one of being decimated with joy and with wonder. Liberated. The burdens fall off. Christianity is different than you may think. Secondly, Jesus is more important than you may think. And and let me show you where I get this. There's two reasons why that is. And just to footnote my sources, I'm getting a lot of this help from uh, a man named Tim Keller. The first reason why Jesus is more important than you may think is because he claimed to be God. If you look back at the verse, at the end of the verse, Mark identifies Jesus as the Son of God. And this is, this is another way of saying that Jesus is God, identifying Jesus as God. And the reason why Mark identifies Jesus as God is because Jesus identified Jesus as God. He went around claiming to be the king of heaven and earth, the maker of all things. This is what he is claiming to be. And so, you know, it's interesting. Every few years, Time Magazine or PBS will put out these lists. You know, you've seen these lists of like the top 100 most influential people in the history of the world. And inevitably, Jesus is always on this list somewhere. Usually the top 10, usually the top 3. Some people would even argue he is the most important person in the history of the world as far as having influence and impact in the world. And I, I'm not saying that as a, as a Christian minister. I'm just, I mean, that's objectively true. You can go to timemagazine.com, whatever, and look for yourself. But this is, this is the case. Jesus claimed to be God and is one of these top three, top most influential people in the world. Now, there are tons of people that have come and gone on this earth that have claimed to be God, right? David Koresh, people kind of in his camp, where people who come on this earth and claim to be God, but they're never really able to convince anybody that it's true, except for like this little ragtag group of followers that kind of surround them. And they never really have any lasting positive impact in the world, because everybody else kind of looks at them and thinks they're crazy. But here's Jesus, and he's in both camps. One of the most influential, important people in the history of the human race, and at the same exact time went around claiming to be God. That's interesting, don't you think? He may be a little bit more important than we give him credit for. Here's the second reason why Jesus is more important than you may think. It's because he was able to convince those that were closest to him that his claims were true, that he was God. And here's where I get this from. Um, Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? It was Mark. Trick question. But every scholar and historian will tell you that Mark was really just simply the scribe writing it, but the person who was providing the stories for the Gospel of Mark was Peter. Okay, who is Peter? Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. And Jesus' inner circle of buddies that was up close and personal with Jesus for three years, intimately involved in Jesus' life. Peter was the person that provided the stories for the Gospel of Mark. Now, if I went around campus and claimed to be God, you know, I'm walking around the UC telling everybody that I'm God, I may could be able to convince a couple of people. I mean, because... I mean, look at me. Uh, it's a joke. Uh, but the last person on earth that I would ever be able to convince I was God would be my wife. 
Because, you know, I, I could manage y'all's perception of me for a while and from a distance. But there's no way I would ever be able to manage my wife's perception of me because she, she just she knows me too well. She lives around me. She knows I'm, I'm, I'm way too impatient to be God. She sees how mean I can be, how angry I can get. There's no way in the world I would ever be able to convince my wife that I'm God. But here's Jesus, and he has convinced those people that have lived life with him the closest, up close, day in and day out, they have seen something in Jesus that has been so compelling. Peter is so radically convinced that Jesus' claim to be God is actually true. So much so, so that when Peter was you know, older, later in life, you know, basically the Roman soldiers had a gun to his head, as it were, and told him to deny that Jesus is God, and he refused. And they killed him for it. Peter was so convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be that he was willing to die for it. Now, here's my point with all this. Jesus is more important than you may think simply by virtue of the fact that he claimed to be God and was able to convince those that were closest to him that that this was true. C.S. Lewis says this. Jesus can either be of utmost importance or of no importance. But what he cannot be is of some importance. And here's what he basically means by that. If you take a look at who Jesus claims to be and what he does, your only options are that he's a liar, he's crazy, or he is who he claimed to be, the king of the universe. And that is to say that there are really only two rational responses to Jesus. To worship him, to follow him as your king, or to really want nothing to do with him. And so some of you find yourself in either of those two camps. Some of you uh, are in the camp where you, where you identify Jesus as God. You identify Jesus as your king. You're struggling to follow him. You're struggling to walk in his ways. And it's, it, it's hard. You fail. You're wrestling with that. But you're trying. And, and that group makes sense to me. That group, I, I think, has intellectual integrity. Some of you may find yourself in this camp where you're like, uh, you know, this whole Christianity thing, you know, to be honest, it, it sounds a little crazy to me. Uh, a guy walking around that's God, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm buying it. If, that, if that's where you are, um, first of all, I'm so glad that you're here and so glad that you would explore that question with us. But I think that that conclusion at least has intellectual integrity. That makes sense to me, that you would look at what Jesus has done and think that's insane and don't know what to do with it. And so even though I may disagree with your conclusion, you at least have intellectual integrity. This group over here that says Jesus is God and I'm trying to follow him, I'm trying to walk in his ways, that group makes sense to me. The group that makes no sense is the group that says, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I think that Jesus is God. And yet he has really no impact in your life at all. He has no authority to contradict you. I mean, basically, you just kind of live your life the way that you live your life. And even when you know you're probably out of line with what he wants for your life, you just don't really care. You don't really even think about it. You have to see that makes no sense. You can't say Jesus is God, Jesus is the king of the universe, and have a cold, apathetic response to him that has zero rational integrity to it. Now, some of you may be here and you're like, I don't even care about the question. I don't care who Jesus is. I don't care if God exists. I'm just here trying to live my life. I'm trying to do my thing. I don't care. And if that's you, let me put it this way. 
if you're just going to shrug off the enormous claims of Jesus with a, I don't really care, you better not just doubt that those claims are true. You better know that they're not true. And here's what I mean by that. Because, because the claim is so enormous, you have to at least look into it. For example, let's say you get a letter in your mailbox with, you know, from the university with official you know, UT stationery. It's from the you know, registrar's office on campus with your name on it. And you open up this letter. And it has your name and it says, you know, congratulations, you have been randomly selected for the Neyland Haslam Scholarship that is awarded once every 50 years at random, and you've been selected. And then you're reading through, and the nature of this scholarship is such that you have, uh, you no longer have to attend any more college classes, but you get all of the credit of a four-year honors program degree. And you can live on campus for as long as you want or stay, you know, hang out on campus for the next four years so that you can do the social thing of college but not have to do the scholastic thing of college. And when you're done with your four years, you are spit out into having whatever job, whatever uh, company you want to work for, it's set up for you. Now, you're sitting there and you're reading this in your room. And you're probably going to think, this sounds like a made-up scholarship. This sounds. This sounds. Um, this sounds like that weird scholarship the RUF guy was talking about the other night. This can't be legit. But would you just crumple it up and throw it away? I mean, would you not at least send an email or something? Ask somebody. Is this legit? Because if you crumple it up and throw it away, and it is legit, and you have just. You have blown it. You have wasted an amazing opportunity, and your, your life is worse because of it. The claim of Jesus is so big. It is so enormous. If you just crumple it up and throw it away and don't even pay attention to it, if it is legit and you crumple it up, you have missed out, and your life is worse because of it. So, what I want to do is I want to invite you to keep coming back to RDF because what a better way to explore that question, hopefully in a safe, no-pressure, non-threatening context, to explore that question with us. Because you have to ask, you have to investigate, you have to explore. If you're just going to crumple up and throw it away, it's a bad response. Because Jesus is more important than you may think. Lastly, and I'll be super brief here, hope is bigger than you may think. Christianity is different than you may think. Jesus is more important than you may think. And last, hope is bigger than you may think. Here's where I get this from. If you look, Jesus is again identified with this title, the Christ. It's a, no, it is not his last name. It is a title. And it's a Greek word that basically means anointed one. And the history of this word is that whenever a king would be coronated, a new king would be brought into office at his you know, inauguration, as it were. He would be anointed with oil. And so there was this enormous expectation that someone is going to come who is going to be not just an average anointed one, but the anointed one. 
Someone who's not just a king, but who is the king of all kings. And right from the beginning, Mark is making this enormous claim. Again, Jesus is that king. Jesus is that Messiah, that anointed one that is going to come into this world and fix it and make everything right. Which assumes that everything is not right. But if you just look around the world for a second, read the news for a second, even contemplate what just happened on our campus today for a second, you know that things are not right. You know that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. There is sex trafficking. There is genocide. There is war. There is death. There is poverty. This world is broken, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. And if you even just kind of zoom in a little closer into your own life, your, your own life feels out of control too, right? I mean, you feel the anxiety, You feel the guilt, you feel the shame, you feel the anger, you feel the depression. You feel like you keep doing things that you don't really want to do, but you keep doing them. You keep hurting people, they keep hurting you. Your life, this world, and everything in it, it's broken. My life too. And the claim right from the beginning of this book is that Jesus is going to come and fix it. One day, someday. The great hope that Christianity offers is not that your soul is going to get sucked to heaven and float in the cloud one day and you get extracted from this world. The hope of Christianity is that Jesus is going to come and renew this world and renovate it and make everything right again. I'll end with this. Um, I heard, uh, I read an article in... The Atlantic Monthly, which was a a story a couple of years ago, where there was this um, author who went to go to this small, smoky, hip, cool jazz club in New York City to see this famous jazz trumpeter named Wynton Marsalis. So here's this author going to this small little jazz club to see Marsalis play. And he's there and he says, you know, just like, the setup is incredible. It's an amazing night. It's small. It's intimate. Marsalis is up there with his trumpet doing his jazz trumpet thing. He's got his band behind him. And he says, the author is describing that the night is just beautiful, majestic, magical. And towards the end of the night, at the last, you know, kind of set, the band steps down and it's just Marsalis by himself at the mic doing his trumpet thing doing a solo, and again, the author is just like, he's just playing this thing flawlessly. And he gets to the very last song, which he's playing this um, like famous American ballad with a simple melody as the chorus. And you know, typically in songs, you kind of repeat the last bar a few times and kind of slow it down right before you kind of hit the last three notes and just kind of round the whole thing out. And so Marsalis is doing that. He's kind of slowing down. He's repeating these last few notes over and over and over. And he's just about to bring the whole thing to a close when someone's cell phone goes off. This, you know, like annoying, like song kind of cell phone thing that just totally shatters the moment. And here's how the author describes the, the, the ringtone. It says, it was a rapid sing-songy melody in electronic beeps. So people start, you know, like laughing. Um, you know, people are like nervously picking up their drinks. The guy who's the phone came in kind of sheepish, sheepishly like takes the call and kind of ducks out. And kind of the moment is kind of shattered. And, and the author gets a cocktail napkin and he writes in big letters, magic ruined. But Marsalis is still at the microphone with his trumpet. And he kind of raises an eyebrow. And then he plays 
the melody of the ringtone on his trumpet and plays it and then plays it again and plays it again. And then he starts to kind of improvise on it and get jazzy with it. And he's going off on it and riffing on it and he's bringing it up tempo, down tempo, and he slowly takes this stupid ringtone and reweaves it back into the original song that he was playing before the phone went off. Reweaves it back in, connects it, slows it down, and hits the last three notes and brings the night out to an amazing close. Now the author had written down on the napkin Magic ruined. But the magic was not ruined because they were in the presence of a master who could take the chaotic silliness and reweave it back into music, reweave it back into beauty. And Mark is making this enormous claim right from the beginning to say Jesus is that master who can take the chaos and the silliness and the insanity of your life and reweave it back into something beautiful. And the way that he does it is he takes the chaos of your life and gets crushed by it on the cross. And then with his resurrection, he ushers in a whole new way of living, a whole new existence, one that is marked by beauty, one that is marked by joy, one that is marked by gentleness and humility. And so really, the question I want to leave you with tonight is this. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is he? How do you answer that? And does your answer... Make sense. Does your answer harmonize with the data that is available about him? I would love to invite you to come back and explore that question with us. Let me pray. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, you indeed are the master. Now, I know many of these folks don't believe that, and they are um, burnt out with Christianity, or they are bored by it, ready to walk away, and uh, just kind of dive headlong into the college thing. And uh, others come in here and they're so buried under guilt and they feel like they are so unworthy of your love and of your forgiveness that you would ev- never want anything to do with them. Uh, and, and we pray, uh, I pray, Father, wherever these folks find themselves, that you would open all of our eyes to who you are. Would you blow up our our false conceptions? Would you blow up our fake conceptions and draw us into wonder and love and joy uh, beyond our wildest dreams? And that's my prayer for tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.